Hey, welcome to the Dirt Show. Sorry, I'm so dressed up. I was in a deposition all day today, and I didn't have a chance to change into something more appropriate for a, for a podcast. Um, big news day today. Big news day today. Ukraine, the president's speech on Ukraine, whether or not Putin is pulling back some of his troops, big deal. Market up 400 points. As a result of it, does that mean that the Martin, the market believes Putin or that the market believes Biden or that the market just wants some assurance that there won't be a war breaking out in Ukraine. We'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about the jury's verdict in the Sarah Palin case. They rejected Sarah Palin's defamation case against the, uh, the New York Times. We'll talk about that. And finally, we'll talk about an issue that is close to home. Um, Prince Andrew um, threw in the towel, basically, and settled his case with Virginia Gouffre, the woman who is falsely accusing me. And so uh, the, the, the question arises, what implications does that have? How much did she get? We don't know. Uh, at this point, these things manage somehow to find their way into the media, but who knows? Who paid? Was it mommy who paid uh, the, the bill? Or was it insurance? Was it the prince himself who just sold his chalet somewhere? So uh, we'll talk about that. So let's start with, uh, with Ukraine. This could be a win-win for both Putin and, 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 and Biden. Uh, Putin doesn't benefit by going to war and taking over more land in Ukraine. He benefits from selling oil. And uh, if he were to send troops into Ukraine, the United States is not going to respond with nuclear weapons. Don't worry, you won't have to go to your shelters. That's not going to happen. But uh, there'll be sanctions, and the sanctions would hurt the Russian economy. The Russian economy is tottering. It's very weak. Uh, it's one of the weakest economies uh, among large countries in the world. You know, Russia is a, an enormous country geographically and underpopulated parts of Russia have very, very tiny populations, and the economy is not, has never been strong. It's stronger now uh, after communism than it was during communism. I was in the Soviet Union several times. During communism, you know, you couldn't get, you couldn't get uh, food. All right, a joke, a story. This is a real story. When I went in 1974 to Russia, to, uh, to Soviet Union, to defend Jewish dissidents, uh, this was the joke the Jewish dissidents were telling about how discriminated against they were. So there's a big announcement, a big, big truckload full of fresh oranges have been imported from Ukraine, and everybody who gets online will be able to get some oranges, fresh oranges, so everybody in Moscow gets online. And then the commissar announces, sorry, it was not a truckload. It was just a small busload. So Jews, go home. You're not getting any oranges. Jews will go home. Next, the commissar gets up and says, sorry, it, 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 wasn't, a, it wasn't a truckload or a busload. It was just a carload. So anybody who's not a member of the Communist Party goes home. So they all go home. Finally, the commissar gets up and he says, bad news, there were no oranges. And so one of the communists turns to the other and says, see, the Jews get all the breaks. They were sent home first. So that was the dissonant joke I was told 
It has, it's relevant because it has to do with Ukraine, it has to do with the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union was poor as could be when I first went there in 1974 with my son Elon, um, and uh, we represented uh, uh, dissidents, but boy, did we eat badly. Uh, you order borscht, it was like water with a little fat and uh, nothing, it tasted horrible. Uh, if you went to a fancy, fancy, one fancy hotel called the National and paid a fortune, you could get some caviar. But the people themselves were, were really starving. And the economy's not very good. And I think, uh, I think Putin would have made a terrible blunder if he had provoked the Western world into greater sanctions. It also would have made him rely far too much on China, which I don't think he wants to rely on. So I think he's... If, if they pull back and they, they, they don't go in, I think he benefits. But I think so does Biden benefit, because he has a victory. Uh, he has a victory. Jake Sullivan announced, the National Security Advisor, the other day that, you know, we're very close, very close. Maybe they'll invade. Now I think he can beat his chest a little bit and say, we threatened, we spoke to him, and they pulled back. We win. We have a victory. I don't believe in victories when it comes to this. I, I just like peace. And I think it was a, a great, great thing that uh, the Russians seem to be pulling back. And it's not the final answer. It's not the final answer. You never know. Uh, nobody is in Putin's head. Nobody really understands what makes him tick. And unlike former Soviet leaders, I knew some of them. I knew Gorbachev. Um, they had to listen to their Politburo and their this and that. You know, they were creatures of the Soviet bureaucracy. Putin's so strong and uh, is really very well liked for the most part in Russia. He's one of the few dictators who could actually win an honest election. There'll never be an honest election in Russia, but if there were one, it's it's possible he could he could win. I think he would win, and 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 so. Uh, I, I, I hope that sensible minds prevail. Um, Russia already got the most important part of Ukraine. They got Crimea. Crimea gives them a warm water port. It gives them, you know, access to very, very important strategic locations. And I think the people of Crimea are somewhat sympathetic, many of them, to Russia. So that's a fait accompli. That happened. And uh, whether he'd be satisfied with that, whether he wants more, whether he'll be able to get more without sanctions, it remains to be seen. But it's an important, an important issue. And I think uh, uh, today we can all just breathe a little bit easier. Okay, let's turn to um, Sarah Palin. She sued the New York Times. Um, now, I haven't seen interviews with the jurors. I don't know what the jurors were, were thinking, but the, the issues in the case were twofold. One, was she defamed? And second, did the New York Times have malice because she's a public figure? She ran for vice president. So she has to prove that the New York Times engaged in malice. What does malice mean? It doesn't mean in law what we think it means, not a malicious person. It means a reckless disregard for truth, either knowing you're publishing something that's false or having a reckless disregard for truth. I'm a real expert on this, especially now because I'm suing CNN and I'm claiming defamation. I'm claiming um, 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 malice uh, and I'm also suing uh, Netflix. So I'm in the business of, of, uh, of suing. Uh, you know, I never had a lawsuit in my life personally until I was 75 years old. Now, 
my only exercise is walking to my lawyers, walking to my doctors. Uh, so I have to pick one day. It's the lawyers, one day it's the doctors. But uh, I'm, I'm confident on both scores. Let's hope my confidence isn't uh, unjustified. So I think that the, um, I think that Sarah Palin proved defamation. I think she was defamed. The New York Times, and the New York Times almost admitted it. The New York Times, in an editorial, editorial, but it was a statement of fact, in the editorial said that Sarah Palin, by foolishly putting out a poster or something in which certain districts had crosshairs, you know, crosshairs, which represent a gun, uh, was responsible for uh, the shootings that caused very, very serious, uh, serious injuries. And, uh, and she wasn't. I mean, there was no connection. There was no connection anybody could really find between her silly posters and the tragedies that occur. And uh, the head of editorial, a guy named Bennett, um, uh, just put it in, just put it in. And he regretted it. And he became a very good witness, actually, because he admitted he was wrong. He said it was an honest mistake. People make honest mistakes all the time. One thing I think the Palin side didn't emphasize enough was that the Times makes mistakes like any other newspaper, but its mistakes are different. Whenever the Times makes a mistake, it benefits the left and it hurts the right. When the Times makes a mistake on the Middle East, it benefits the Palestinians. It hurts the Israelis. You can judge a newspaper by which side its mistakes come out. Normally, you'd think that if a newspaper makes 100 mistakes a year, 50 would favor one side, 50 would favor the other side. But when it makes 100 mistakes a year and they all favor its ideological side, you have to ask yourself the question, is that a reckless disregard for the truth? It's a close question. And the jury said no. There was another very interesting development in the case. The judge, very good reputation, Judge Rakoff, while the jury was deliberating, they were not sequestered. They could go home. They could watch television. They could go on the Internet. They were told not to, but if you've been on a jury, you know. Uh, while the jury was deliberating, the judge came down with a verdict saying, I don't care what the jury says. I'm throwing this case out. I have concluded that the uh, Sarah Palin did not establish malice. And so the speech was protected. The New York Times mistake was protected under the first Amendment. Now, two questions come to mind immediately, and I don't know the answer to either of them. Maybe we'll learn. One, did the jury find out, one way or another, did any jurors find out that their negotiations were essentially moot court, not real court, that the case was going to get thrown out regardless of what they decided? Did the jury know that? That's a statement of fact. And if a motion is made, probably it will be made or was made, by the Palin legal team to question the jurors? Maybe we'll find out the answer to that. Second question is a lot more difficult. If they did know, did it influence their judgment? Would they have decided the case the same way no matter what? Does it matter to a juror what the judge decided? It might. Uh, who knows? I don't know what the jury dynamics were. There was a, you know, a deliberation of a couple of days, so it's conceivable that uh, a juror may have come in. I'm just, again, hypothetical. A juror comes in and says, my God, did you hear what I just read on the internet? Judge Rakoff has decided the case already. We're just, just furniture. We're 12 pieces of furniture being moved around 
by the judge, what we, what we decide doesn't really count. Um, and, and if that happened, would a juror say, oh, you know, I was thinking of ruling for Palin, but if the judge thinks that there was no malice established, maybe I ought to go along with the judge. I don't know. I have to tell you, I don't think it's a good practice for judges to render their decisions publicly, um, let it be in the press, uh, widely covered, at a time when an unsequestered jury is deciding the case. The logic was this. He was going to decide the case anyway. But he said it was going to be appealed. No matter who won or lost, it would be appealed. And it would be relevant to the Court of Appeals to know how the jury would have or did render its verdict. So um, he wanted to see what the jury verdict is. It's going to make it much harder for Palin to appeal now because she has both the jury and the judge against her. She probably will appeal on the ground that the judge shouldn't have rendered his verdict while the jury was deliberating. Stay tuned. Uh, it, it could have been an important case had it gone the other way because there are judges now, including at least a couple of Supreme Court justices, who are reconsidering the classic case of New York Times versus Sullivan. I was the law clerk uh, on that case. I actually worked on uh, Justice Goldberg's concurring opinion. In that case, my co-clerk did most of the work on that, but I did some. And, um, it, you know, New York Times versus Sullivan is the standard. It's the gold standard, and it requires a very high level of proof of malice. Uh, and there are courts who are rethinking whether in the age of digital communications, as uh, Winston Churchill said, um, that uh, the, the truth, uh, the, a false story makes it halfway around the world before the truth can get its shoes on. Um, that's even truer today than it was 50 years ago when it was 60 years ago when Winston Churchill said it. Today, a false story, a misleading story gets all over the world. And, um, and uh, the catch-up story, you know, doesn't, doesn't catch up. Uh, the accusation against me, the false accusation that a woman I never met, never heard of, never saw, um, and who admitted that she had never met me, and whose lawyer admitted that I couldn't have done it, that story was front page all over the world, partly because I was accused along with Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew may have met her. Uh, there's a photograph. There was some question about the photograph, but at least there's a piece of evidence in my case. There's absolutely no evidence. So, you know, when the story hit, it was a big story. When the judge dismissed the allegations against me, as the judge did in the case, it was on page 28. When the lawyers on her side said, we withdraw the complaint, we were wrong to file it, that didn't even appear in the newspapers. So, you know, the salacious story gets headlines, the apology the retraction, the withdrawal, gets nothing. So I have to fight um, and will continue to fight uh, for my vindication. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to prove categorically through her own words and her own mouth, not only that uh, the woman who accused me never met me, never saw me, never heard of me, was pressured into accusing me by her lawyers, but that she herself, when she was 19 years old, trafficked groomed 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds to Jeffrey Epstein for money being paid cash. So, you know, if the prince's case had gone to a jury, and even if they had ruled against the prince, I don't think the damages would have been very great because 
what's the damage to her reputation? That was the claim. Damage to reputation, essentially. If her reputation is that she's a child trafficker and she did what she did, even though she claimed she was pressured into doing it by Jeffrey Epstein, I, I don't think she would have collected a lot of money, but you know, the case was settled. We don't know how much money it was settled for, who paid. As I said, maybe it'll come out, maybe it won't come out. Uh, a lot of cases, settlements do come out. Some cases, they remain secret. But uh, I'm going to pay very close attention to this. And now my case becomes the big case, because it's the only case left where Virginia Gouffre's credibility can be tested. And um, my case is moving slowly. I was deposed today. Um, but eventually, we have to get to trial, and she has to prove that she met me and have her manuscript, a book manuscript in which she says she saw me once. She saw me once, but never met me. Uh, I have emails. I have a tape recording by her own lawyer saying she's wrong, simply wrong. It would have been impossible for you to have been in the places she said she met. All of that will come out, obviously, at a trial. So uh, my hope is that um, uh, everybody will understand and agree that uh, this was a made-up story. Because if you go today, on the internet, there are all these trolls and whatever you call them. They still call me these names. They still, you know, they're not interested in the evidence. They're just interested in the accusation. That's why I wrote a book called Guilt by Accusation, where today, if you're accused, you're guilty. Um, no matter how much evidence comes in the other way, um, if you're accused, you're guilty. So stay tuned. I will not dominate this podcast with my own cases, obviously, but we'll report to you from time to time about the progress in my cases, and I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say about these cases. So today, we're going to take some questions and comments, um, and uh, let's see what you have to say, and let's see what I have to say about what you have to say. So, first question. I really love this question. Regarding your comments about the deeply offensive Holocaust Comedy Act, remember that was this British uh, comedian, so-called comedian, who told a joke about the Romani people saying that everybody talks about all the Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. Nobody talks about the Romani people because people don't want to talk about the benefits, as if there was a benefit to killing so many people. Horrible, horrible, horrible joke. Universally condemned. So here's the question. It's an interesting question. How is that different from Mel Brooks in The Producers and Springtime for Hitler? Well, it's all the difference in the world. Mel Brooks, first of all, is brilliant beyond compare as a comedian, as a comic writer. Second, he was spoofing, he was knocking, he was, you know, he was making Hitler a laughing stock. I like that. Uh, as somebody who's had relatives killed in the Holocaust and somebody who is, thinks the Holocaust was the worst thing that could possibly have happened. Um, I loved Springtime for Hitler. It was a way of making people laugh at Adolf Hitler. He was the butt of the joke. So I'm not saying that jokes about tragedies are never permitted, but the joke that was told by that British comedian was not a good-natured joke. It was very, very different. There may be another issue. I wonder what you think about this. I think Jews are allowed to tell jokes about Jews, even if they're in bad taste. But non-Jews are not allowed to tell jokes about Jews. 
Uh, I think African-Americans are allowed to tell jokes about themselves, but non-African-Americans, no, stay away from that. Uh, and this British guy is not a Romani. He's not telling a joke about himself. He's not laughing at himself the way Mel Brooks, a Jew, was laughing at himself. So I do think you call it a double standard. Maybe it is a double standard. And we apply a double standard. We say that people, you know, there was a great episode on Seinfeld um, where Seinfeld's dentist, uh, who was a comedian, but a failed comedian, um, uh, converts to Judaism. And Seinfeld says, he didn't do it out of principle. He did it because he wants to tell Jewish jokes, basically. And he knows if he's Jewish, he can tell Jewish jokes. I'm curious what you think, whether or not we should allow that kind of a, a double a standard. Um, so that's one question. Uh, and, and, and relating to that question, I just there's one comment that I wanted to quote because I love it. It's a quote by Richard Feynman. I got to know Richard. Uh, toward the end of his life, Richard won the Nobel Prize in Physics, and some of you know some of his books, great books. Um, and um, here's the statement that I love. It's a statement I'm going to put up somewhere. I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And it should be at every university lecture hall, because today there are questions that can't be, today we have both. But there are, there are answers that can't be questioned. Um, critical race theory. What a misnomer. You can't be critical about race theory. If you're critical about what is put forward as race theory, you're called a racist. You can't be critical. It's the most uncritical thing uh, imaginable. So um, uh, two cheers, three cheers for Richard Feynman. I remember him all the time. Um, next question. This is about the January 6th, quote, insurrection. And so here's the question. Were they trespassing if the doors were open for them? I remember watching this live and seeing these people who entered staying within the ropes of the foyer, etc. They didn't destroy property, burn or loot. Worst insurrection ever? Well, Full disclosure, I'm representing one of those young men, a law student, terrific guy, really nice guy. He went to Washington simply to protest. He was there, he went to hear President Trump speak, and he listened to President Trump. I didn't like President Trump's speech, but he was within his rights to make it. And he said he wanted people to protest peacefully and patriotically, and that's what my client did. He went there simply to protest and stand outside, signs, you know, maybe shouting, uh, unfair, unfair, whatever. Then people started entering. He was not among the first group that started entering. And then, and you can see it on video, there are policemen who are welcoming them in and basically saying, look, you know, trespassing, that's one thing, just don't do harm, don't do violence, and leave when we tell you. My client went in, um, didn't hurt anybody, didn't push anybody, didn't destroy any property. Uh, just went up to the gallery of the Senate, uh, sat there, and maybe shouted a couple of words, and then left. Uh, but he's been indicted for felony, not for trespassing, but for basically obstructing uh, Congress. But there have been so many obstructions of Congress. Remember, during some of the confirmation hearings of justices, um, people refused to leave, people started shouting, people started yelling, 
people obstruct the Supreme Court, people, look what happened with Black Lives Matter. They obstructed access to the courts, access to business. They obstructed commerce. Look what's going on in Canada. They're obstructing the border. So there has to be some room for obstructive behavior. Sit-ins, sit-ins in the 1950s and 1960s at lunch counters. My father-in-law had a lunch counter in his little pharmacy in Charleston, South Carolina, and people sat in. That was trespassing, but we all applauded it. So um, what we need to make sure of is that we don't over, over, overstate this and that we treat everybody equally and we don't group everybody together. The people who went in and broke computers or hurt people, they should be prosecuted. Those are serious crimes. People who just stayed outside shouldn't be prosecuted at all. And, and people who just trespassed, either they shouldn't be prosecuted, Justice Brandeis, in an opinion dissenting, once said that trespassing is permitted to some degree under the First Amendment if it's for purposes of protest, but they certainly shouldn't be lumped together with the people who are violent and they shouldn't be treated as felons when what they did was either a misdemeanor or an offense. But again, I have a client, so take my analysis with what it's worth knowing that I have a point of view on this. I'm, I've been a civil libertarian, an advocate of free speech, the right to petition government for redress of grievances, and I would always err on the side of permitting free speech, even if it's a little bit obstructionist or trespassing, than in forbidding free speech. Uh, free speech needs breathing room in order to be able to operate effectively. Okay, now, Let's get to some of the critical mail. We must all love that, okay? Agree to disagree with you, you left-wing hack? You never talked about video evidence of Epps on Revolver, nor did you speak of the video evidence of Georgia video of ballots being counted after a shutdown because of the pipe burst, ballot harvesting, dead people votes, the proof is everywhere, laptop from hell, Biden bragging on video of getting Ukraine ministers fired. You are a brainwashed left-wing hack. You think Biden got 81 million votes? You're a blind man leading other blind men. And the tweet or the comment right after that is, disagree with your assessment of Dirsch. He's referring to that assessment. While I disagree with his politics and with some of his political analysis, including his views of the 2020 election, Dirsch has the right to his opinions. Also, he's one of the few Democrats to listen to, even when I disagree with him because he cares about the Constitution and aims to be fair and impartial. I certainly aim to be fair and impartial, and that makes me enemies on both sides. I just finished writing a new book called The Price of Principle, how refusing to follow party lines and putting principle above partisanship costs friends and, and, and business acquaintances and, uh, and, 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 and lots and lots of problems. And because I am not a partisan, I'm not liked by the Democrats. They think I am too centrist. I'm certainly not liked by the Trump supporters because I don't believe that the uh, election uh, was inaccurate. I think there were problems in the election. I actually believe that Pennsylvania should not have been allowed to do what it did. And I think the Supreme Court was wrong in not taking the Pennsylvania case, but I don't think the election as a whole was uh, influenced uh, by um, improper uh, uh, factors. I have another client, Mike Lindell, my pillow. First Amendment issues, we may disagree about what he said, but 
I defend his right to say it. So, you know, call me a political hack, call me partisan. I'm not, I'm not partisan. I'm partisan in favor of the Constitution. I always come out in favor of the Constitution, regardless of whether the shoe is on one foot or the shoe is on the other foot. And then finally, this is really not only an attack on me, but an attack on Harvard. This guy is as phony a civil libertarian as there is. I don't need to go to Harvard Law School to know injecting someone with a substance they don't want in their body by force is against their civil liberties. Common people can read the Constitution and understand it fine. Goddamn lawyers insist we should not believe our living eyes and ears. People at Harvard are no smarter than the average person. Their daddies just have more money than ours. The sooner we get the people to reject Harvard and the awful garbage that comes out of it, the sooner we can regain our God-given rights. This man is a godless authoritarian. Well, my daddy wasn't rich. Uh, I went to a free college and then to law school on a scholarship. And um, I went into teaching, even though I could have made 10 times the amount of money practicing law than, than, than teaching. But I happen to agree with you. People at Harvard are no smarter. Um, you know, Jefferson once said, put a philosophical question to a plowman or a philosopher or a professor, the plowman will probably give you the right answer. So, you know, I grew up on the streets of Brooklyn, and so I have an enormous amount of respect for the average guy out there. Uh, for me, uh, some of the smartest people I ever knew uh, were on the streets of Brooklyn. Uh, people I met in the bowling alleys, people I met at Ebbets Field, People, you know, I, I just met hanging around in the street corners. Uh, so we shouldn't take our, our views from Harvard. You know, there are scientists who are experts, and obviously we want to accept their expertise. But even today, expertise is being challenged, certainly in the context of the vaccine. You know, the vaccine and COVID has really divided America almost as much as, as Trump and his opponents divided uh, America, and we live in a very, very divisive and, and dangerous time. But let's not engage in name-calling, in ad hominems. Let's answer the other side with logic, with better arguments. Don't close them down. The hard left today, the woke generation, wants to shut down anybody who doesn't agree with them. My God, the stories that are coming out now, University of Illinois law school professor who's been suspended because he gave a hypothetical on his exam, which was about the use of a word, a racial epithet that I won't use. Um, and, and, and he, but it's, it's in the context, that was the issue. And so he used the first letter of the word, not the rest of the letters. And the students went nuts and he, got suspended. And, you know, we just can't have that kind. Division is fine as long as we talk to each other, as long as we have the opportunity to argue back and forth. And that's why I love this podcast. I love to have an opportunity to talk to you. Half of my viewers and listeners don't agree with me, at least half. And write to me. You just scroll down, comments, write your comments. As you'll see, I read them. You write them. I read them. No censorship on Rumble. No censorship on The Dirt Show. See you tomorrow.